Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. This is a crowd podcast. Hello, everyone. What you've got here is a special episode of a new podcast called Death of a Film Star. Now, these are the stories of the stars who'll never fade. From Heath Ledger to Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman to James Dean. We're putting it on here so that all you Marilyn Monroe fans who joined us for this week's episode of Fire can indulge yourself even more. So while you're waiting for next week's episode of We Didn't Start the Fire, why not get stuck in to Death of a Film Star? It's sunny in Los Angeles. It's a Saturday in August. Hey, it's always sunny in LA. That's the point. It's always sunny. Everyone smiles. Everyone's always having a great day. We're at a white-painted house in the leafy part of town. On its own little plot, a curvy swimming pool out front, citrus trees and shade. A red-tiled roof, made to look like we're in Spain, somewhere old and classy not new and all make-believe. A Hacienda-style home. That's how they've marketed it. There's people there. A housekeeper. A psychiatrist. We'll meet them later. They're important to this story. But they're there for someone else. Maybe the most famous woman in the world. A film star and a pin-up and an object of obsession. Whether you're in LA or New York or London or Rome... It's not true to say there's never been anyone like Marilyn Monroe. There's always been movie stars. There's been blonde ones. Ones with bodies that half the world wants to stare at and the other half want to ban. But no one's done it like her. And no one's paying quite such a price. She's not old, Marilyn. 36. She still looks like Marilyn. If there's a camera between you and her, if the light's in the right place, if the makeup is just so. The hair, bleached to platinum, curled round her face. The red lips, the face shaped only a little by the surgeon's knife. The figure, like an impossible mix of curves and tight lines, like a conjuring trick of reality and desire. She seems at home here, bought the place six months ago, half cash, half mortgage. A fresh start in a town that loves a comeback story. But there's things going on you don't know about. Something behind the trees, beyond the pool, in those quiet, shaded rooms, behind the dark lashes and red lips. See, Marilyn's always given herself away. She's told the world about the foster parents, about the time in the orphanage, about growing up Norma Jean, the nude photo shoots, the acting lessons... The world seen her in the big hits, films with other stars, but titles all about her. Gentlemen prefer blondes, some like it hot. She's always the ditzy, dumb blonde. That's the part she plays, the part they want. Hair and teeth and heaving chest, innocence and temptation, there to corrupt, there to be corrupted. But she doesn't talk about the mother in a psychiatric ward. She doesn't talk about the sexual abuse as a child, the doubts and fears, the insecurities and paranoias. 
And now there are secrets on top of the secrets. The pills she's taking, the pills they're giving her. The men who are good to her and the men who turn bad. Agents and actors, heroes and presidents. The hangers-on, the ones who won't let go. The ones who depend on her, who live off her. And so it'll all come together on this sunny L.A. day in August 1962. The past and the present, the real and the make-believe. Where she has been, where she is now. There's one thing you want to ask in this house. This movie star, this woman who can sell any scene to anybody. Why isn't she making movies anymore? She hasn't completed a film in almost two years. The one she did nearly finished her. It's called The Misfits. Stars Clark Gable, her hero as a kid. The man she used to pretend was her dad. It's written by Arthur Miller. That's her third husband. Or at least it was her third husband. They're splitting up as they film it. And as they split up, she's falling apart. She's late on set. She forgets her lines. She slurs them when they're given to her. Her makeup? They put that on when she's asleep, when she's passed out. They stop filming for two weeks while she goes to hospital. The director says something to a friend, tells him she's doomed. I'm absolutely certain. Why? The pills, the booze, sometimes one, sometimes the other, often both. Here's the thing about barbiturates. They slow down your nervous system. That's why they call them downers. They're supposed to relax you, take away the anxiety, the panics, help you sleep. Doctors think they're easy, cheap to buy, simple to prescribe, made in their millions, a magical buffer against everything you're scared of. But they're potent too, and they're never subtle. You try some, and you need more. You take more, and they do less. Stress? They don't take it away. They just postpone it. They feed it. So this is Marilyn. Paranoid and stressed and unable to sleep. Taking pills that make her paranoid and stressed and unable to sleep. She takes other pills, uppers, to fight the downers, with alcohol to kick them on. And no one trusts her now. The directors, the actors, the money men. What use is an actress who isn't awake long enough to act, a star that never shines? She'd been first choice for the film version of Breakfast at Tiffany's. The studio goes for Audrey Hepburn instead. She starts another film for 20th Century Fox, gets ill and gets sacked. They make it public. It's her fault. They sue her for breach of contract. They want $750,000 in damages. So what does Marilyn do? She tries to fight back. She does interviews with the big magazines, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, Life. There's photo shoots on the beach in LA, the sun on her face, the wind in her hair. Little bikinis and dresses that start low and get lower. And when they're done, she goes back to her house and waits. Waits for the calls, waits for the rolls, takes her pills and drinks her drinks. Thinks about where she's been. 
where she is now. Here's the thing with Marilyn. She's always been trying to escape, to be someone who's not Norma Jean Baker, this kid with no dad and no money, always trying to please people, never sure how. And everyone she meets? They all have their idea of who she really is, who she should be for them, how they can really make her happy. She gets married first when she's 16. It's love as practicality, romance at gunpoint. Her foster family are moving away from L.A., so it's either go into an orphanage or marry this kid from school. Of course, it doesn't work. A housewife at 16, a husband who's 21 and away half the time in the Merchant Navy. He doesn't like it when she starts modelling. He hates the idea of her acting. He wants this little brown-haired girl to be cooking his tea, washing his clothes, cleaning the house. So that's the first to fall away. The second marriage, that's to a superstar, an American hero. She's Marilyn now, bleached blonde, long legs, a red-hot male fantasy. It's Joe DiMaggio, 18 years older, just retiring from baseball after winning nine World Series with the New York Yankees. Likes to be known as the world's greatest living ball player. They're in love, that's what everyone says. But it's always men's own version of Marilyn they want to be in love with. Joe? He wants this woman all for himself. He wants her at home making spaghetti for him. He watches her filming that famous scene from The Seven Year Itch when she stands over a subway grate and her white dress billows up and she's all high heels and legs and other men staring. And he loathes it. They're the biggest couple in America. Front pages, TV, magazines. But there's love and there's darkness. He controls her, hits her. Nine months after the wedding, they divorce. Which brings us to Arthur Miller, another older man, a playwright to follow the sports star. The papers find the idea of this intellectual and this sex symbol so strange that one headline just says, Egghead weds hourglass. There's an ectopic pregnancy. There's a miscarriage. There's DiMaggio back on the scene, wanting a second chance. And all the time, there's the uppers and downers and the booze. It's the way it's always been. When she's slept with movie agents, men three times her age just to get ahead. When she's slept with movie stars like Brando and Sinatra. When she's gone to bed with JFK, another notch on the young president's bedpost. So she ends up in a mental hospital the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic, New York. In a ward for people with psychosis, locked away in a padded cell, it's only Joe DiMaggio who gets her out. Does this sound fair? Does this sound like what she wants, any of this? There's a line from Some Like It Hot from her character Sugar Cane, a ditzy blonde, always playing it for laughs. She says, The story of my life? I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. So we're in her house, 
On this August day in 1962, the sun shining, the films failing, the darkness coming in. The day before, she's been injected with a weird mix of stuff her doctors call a vitamin shot. Here's a list of these vitamins. Nembutol. Seconol. Phenobarbital. Chloral hydrate. Right. Three different downers. Another to make you sleep. A Mickey Thin, they call it in Hollywood, to knock you out. There's a fresh prescription for 25 more Nembutol. This is what doctors do when you're that big. Give you what you want. She's been writing letters, telling people she can't sleep, that she's in chronic pain, that she'll never be happy. She sends one friend a lyric for a song she doesn't know how to write. It says, Help, help, I feel life coming closer, when all I want is to die. There's always Joe... He's been taking her out again, telling her he's sorry, wanting to get married, again. But there's something she's told a reporter from one of those magazines, the one with the photos of her on the beach. She says, You don't know what it's like to have all that I have and not be loved or no happiness. So we need to talk about the other two people in the house. The psychiatrist? That's Ralph Greenson. He's in his early 50s. His hair swept back and going grey, his moustache darker. Wears a black suit and white tie. Marilyn's been seeing him every day for the past month. She's been seeing him for months. He cancels other clients for her. She stays on after sessions for a glass of champagne. She comes to his office, stays at his home. He treats her like a member of the family. None of this is normal. She's phoning him at all hours. He tells her how she should behave, where she should go. This is what psychiatrists do when you're that big. The other person, the housekeeper, her name's Eunice Murray. She's 60 years old, short, dark hair, black rimmed glasses. It was Greenson's idea that Marilyn hire her. Now Murray's staying over in the guest bedroom, looking after her mail, answering her phone, deciding what she should do, where she should go. This is supposed to be Murray's last day. Marilyn wants to let her go. But she's there at eight in the morning, before Marilyn is awake. Gets her the glass of grapefruit juice she has for breakfast at nine. And Marilyn wakes up slowly. Signs for a few deliveries. Talks to a photographer. Chats to a publicist. Gets a massage. Greenson arrives just after midday follows her into the main bedroom for their therapy session, sends everyone else away, except the housekeeper. At 3pm, Murray drives Marilyn to the beach. She wants fresh air. They bump into a few friends, movie people, Peter Lawford, the actor. And they notice. You can't not notice. How Marilyn's slurring her words. How she's struggling to stand up, staggering. Murray takes her home. Five o'clock. Peter Lawford is worried. He calls her house, invites her to his for a party. Loves the party, Lawford. He's connected. Married to JFK's little sister, part of the Rat Pack with Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. Marilyn says no. Seven o'clock. Ralph Greenson leaves. Says to Eunice Murray, the housekeeper, you stay here. 
You watch her overnight. And the phone keeps ringing. Just after seven, it's Joe DiMaggio Jr., the son of the greatest living ball player from his first marriage. He's in the army stationed nearby, always got on with Marilyn. They chat for a few minutes. He thinks she sounds okay. She's alert. She's happy. 8pm. Marilyn goes to bed. And Peter Lawford calls again. And this time, there's panic. Marilyn sounds different now. She's not alert. She's not happy. Lawford knows about downers. They're part of his world. They're Hollywood. And he can hear them in her voice. He's angry and he's scared. Who's looking after her? Who's got her like this? He thinks she's drugged. He thinks this is bad. He tells her to come over, that it's okay, and all she can say back to him is this. Say goodbye to your wife. Say goodbye to the president. And say goodbye to yourself, because you're a nice guy. She stops speaking. Lawford tries to call again. No answer. He calls his own agent, says, I've got to go over there. His agent says, you're JFK's brother-in-law, you can't. So the agent tries. Calls Ralph Greenson, the psychiatrist. No answer. A call reaches Eunice Murray, the housekeeper. She says, don't worry, Marilyn is fine. And now the stories start to open up, to bend and to slip. Let's do the official version first. Eunice Murray says she wakes up at half three in the morning. Why? Because she senses something is wrong. She says, I saw a light under the door of Marilyn's bedroom. She says, I tried to get in, but the door was locked. She says, I looked through the window and saw Marilyn face down on the bed holding the phone. She calls Greenson. He's there in minutes. Breaks the window to get into the bedroom, tries to take Marilyn's pulse. Finds nothing. A doctor is called just before half four in the morning. A call goes into the LA Police Department. We're at the residence of Marilyn Monroe. She's committed suicide. Okay, some facts. When the autopsy is done, it shows Marilyn died somewhere between half eight and half ten at night. They give her cause of death as acute barbiturate poisoning. They mention the empty medicine bottles next to her bed, and they rule out an accidental overdose. Doesn't matter there's no suicide note. The doctors talk about abrupt and unpredictable mood changes. They say she's been prone to severe fears and frequent depressions. They state the official conclusion, probable suicide. That's what they say. And because this is the most famous woman in the world, the questions start straight away. This light under the bedroom door. How did Eunice Murray see that when the carpets were so new and so thick that it was hard to even close the door? The door being locked. There were no internal locks on the bedroom door, right? Questions and theories. Someone says, it's an accidental overdose. It's the psychiatrist and the housekeeper. The psychiatrist didn't know how many downers she'd already taken that day. He prescribed a chloral hydrate enema to get her to sleep, and Mickey Finn, the housekeeper, administered it. When they found her dead, they staged it as suicide. 
theories and conspiracies. Marilyn had slept with JFK but was having an affair with his brother, Robert Kennedy. She was going public with it. He had her killed to save his career. The next one. Marilyn was sleeping with Bobby Kennedy. The CIA murdered her as revenge on the Kennedys for the Bay of Pigs fiasco for something else. Another. She's killed by union boss Jimmy Hoffa, by the mobster Sam Giancana. And all this stuff, all these wild ideas, all these make-believe stories, there's never any proof for them. Years later, the LA district attorney does a review of the case. No evidence is ever found of murder. There's no evidence of an affair with Bobby Kennedy. There's no records of anyone else being at the house except Marilyn, the housekeeper, and the psychiatrist. So let's go back to what we know. Marilyn Monroe is buried on the 8th of August, three days after her body is found in that bedroom, telephone in her hand. She's wearing a green dress, holding a bouquet of pink roses. The makeup man who always worked with her on film sets and photo shoots does her makeup one final time. It's Joe DiMaggio who arranges it all, who collects her body from the morgue, who invites only a few close friends and family, who keeps the actors and the agents and the politicians away. The hangers-on, the ones who won't let go, the ones who depend on her, who live off her. There's music. A recording of Judy Garland singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, selections from Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. There's connections to the past, the cemetery is the same one where two of her foster parents were buried. There's thousands of people in the streets outside. TV crews, front pages around the world. In LA and New York, in London, in Rome. And it's Joe with the role you can't forget. What does Joe do? He has red roses placed on her memorial three times a week. Every week of the year. Every year until his own death. 20 years later. Because inside the gates, it's all come together. The past and the present. The real and the make-believe. Where Marilyn has been, where she is now. And the sun shines. Because the sun always shines in L.A. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we used the archives of the BBC, The Times, the LA Times and the New York Times. We read books including Donald Spotto's biography, Marilyn Monroe, and Anthony Summers' book, Goddess. And we watched films including The Seven Year Itch, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Some Like It Hot and The Misfits. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. Enjoyed this show? Then you might love another of our podcasts, We Didn't Start the Fire. There's episodes about Marilyn, James Dean and more because it's a cultural history of the post-war world 
all based around the lyrics to Billy Joel's number one hit. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Tindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season 1, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season 1, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season 1, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francesa podcast today from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sports Betters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sports Betters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season 1, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season 1, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaire sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, 
This is Bad Money. Season one, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaires' sons in boxes is is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season one, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaires' sons in boxes is is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season one, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaires' sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season one, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In a country run by billionaires and triads, one gangster decides to go it alone. To have a guy like that with bombs and AK-47s and putting billionaires' sons in boxes is, is scary. And his actions provoke a geopolitical crisis that leaves Hong Kong in pieces. From Kindling Media and Vespucci, this is Bad Money. Season one, Big Spender. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. 
Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.